firstly, thank you so much for coming. Uh, my name's Jez, and I'm part of the New Day team. This is the first time we've tried anything like this at New Day before. Uh, it's a youth conference, so we don't tend to put stuff on for young people. But I thought, I've got something really on my heart I'd love, us, I'd love to try to explore and see if there's anybody out there that it might resonate with as well. So you guys coming is, uh, is wonderful, encouraging, and we'll see what God's going to do with this time. Um, I am a dad. I have three sons. Uh, my eldest has just turned 13, and then I have a 10-year-old, <laughs> a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. And uh, I, I love being a dad. I think I always felt a desire and a call of some kind to be a father. I always thought I'd have two sons and then a daughter. And I, I don't know why, because obviously we don't have control over those things. But I was convinced that the Lord and I were in an agreement. I would have two sons and then a daughter. And the idea was that the sons would protect the daughter. And so when we had our third, when my wife was pregnant with our third, we did the ultrasound scan and, they, and we thought, well, let's find out what it is because it's the third one. And they, they, they found out that we were likely having another son. Or they say, you're definitely having another son because we see something that wouldn't otherwise be there. Um, you're having a son. And, um, and that, was a, uh, that was a strange experience for me because my kind of vision of my script of my life, two sons and a daughter, was gone. And it was one day I was looking at this picture of a, of a silhouette of a man carrying two sons and having another son at his side. And it was, it was entitled The Father's Covering. And God just really broke me as I looked at that picture. And I felt God speak to me quite clearly and say, I have called you to be a man who raises sons to be a father of boys. And getting faith that God is with you in this journey of parenting is a big deal, isn't it? I don't know how you felt when you first became a dad or when the midwife handed you a child and said, it's a boy, it's a girl. That moment, everything changes uh, with just those three words. Uh, So I was... Um, how old was I? I was 29, I think. No, 27. I was 27 when I became a dad. Um, two months after becoming a dad, my own dad died of cancer. And his last words was the name of my son, my eldest son. And so I just became a dad, r- excited to raise a son, thinking I can get the help of my dad to tell me what to do. And bef- without really realizing it, it was going to happen so fast. My own dad was gone, found myself kind of alone in the journey trying to work out what to do um, and so what we're going to do today uh, is I want to do a couple of things firstly I want to I want you guys to leave feeling encouraged and strengthened in some degree knowing that God's with you that your brothers and sister great to have you with us your brother and sisters around you are also with you we're in this journey together but I want to introduce to you uh, an idea that I got from a book by John Tyson called The Primal Path um, we asked them to stock it in the bookshop, but they've sold out, so maybe some of you have bought it already. But John Tyson, uh, a couple of years ago, he's a, he, John Tyson's a, a pastor in New York. He wrote a book called The Intentional Father. I listened to it on audiobook and cried most of my way through it because I just felt like this, it just resonated so deeply with me. So we're going to talk about the value of dads, and then we're going to talk about the concept of intentional fathering or the primal path, um, creating some level of intentional pathway to help our sons transition from childhood to manhood. Um, One of Tyson's, I keep pointing over here as though he's behind me, in the bookshop, um, John Tyson who writes the book, one of his kind of big premises is that every culture, almost every culture in history has had a clear pathway to help or a clear set of goals and standards or values and systems and things that they did to help their sons transition from childhood to manhood. 
And he said, every culture, that is, except for the modern West. And I don't know what, what you think about... I don't know, we, we hear about the state of masculinity and the sons in our culture, and I think boys particularly are suffering and struggling in our society for lack of clarity over what it means to be a man and lack of guidance and community. So that's the sort of thing we're going to talk about, and we'll spend some time hopefully at the end praying for our sons together in our pairs. Um, sons, how do people think about sons in our culture when you were told you were having a son? And I'll explain why I'm talking specifically about sons, partly because I don't have a daughter, um, but then also for other reasons we'll talk about in a moment. Sons are generally considered to be wild, aren't they? In need of some level of taming, potentially destructive, likely to die in battle in times of war, likely to break people's hearts. Oh, he'll be a heartbreaker. Lock up your daughters, they say. It's not very nice. Um, But also sons have the potential to be magnificent, powerful, culture-making creatures. And I realize that we need to help one another as dads in the church to raise not just biological sons, but spiritual sons as well. The Great Commission, of course, trumps the original created commission in that making disciples is supposed to be the the path and the, the commission and call on every church and every Christian, whether we have biological children or not. Um, now, ever since I became a Christian... I became a Christian from a non-Christian home at university, really, and ever since then found myself surrounded by and in a community of older men and other men who helped me learn about the Christian life, which I found to be invaluable. One of them here in Hugh was a, a, a brother, slight, a slightly older brother, a couple of years, um, in Canterbury, taught me what it was to live as a Christian, which I appreciated so much. Um, but now I've been in full-time ministry in the church for 20 years uh, as a pastor of a church. I'm pastor of a church on the south coast of England. I've always had a passion to try to support boys, draw alongside boys, encouraging them, but also dads. I ran a, a club at my local primary school that we called Big Lads, Little Lads. We called it Big Lads, Little Lads, which was dads and sons, until someone complained, and then we called it Big Lads, Little Lads, and Lasses. Um, but there we go. Uh, <laughs> the irony is the person who complained never came, but there we go. <laughs> That's always the way. We did a Big Lads, Little Lads, which was games with fathers and sons. Um, all of them were outside the church, and I was encouraged with how that went. In fact, I still, the, the dads from that group formed a good community, and now we still meet up for curries from time to time. And uh, we went for a weekend away with these chaps. And one of them still says it's the most meaningful thing he's ever done with his son. Being in an, they're not in church. Being in an environment where they were being encouraged by other fathers they found to be invaluable. Um, and for the past year in our church, we've been running a group that we've called Intentional Fathers, trying to create a community of dads to support one another in raising sons. Now, if, you've, if we've got our Bibles or maybe you've got a phone, I just wanted to ground something in scripture if we go to Luke chapter 3 I want to walk us through something so in Luke chapter 3 we have the baptism of Jesus and it was only last year I was preaching uh, a subject on the way of Jesus learning to live as Christians and sometimes reading the Bible in a broader bigger brushstroke view can be very helpful for us can't it you've got Jesus's baptism verse 21 um All the people were being baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. 
And then it goes on. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai. And on it goes through the genealogy. And then we get to the temptation of Jesus. Jesus, in, in, in chapter 4, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Um, you'd think. Um, so that's the temptation of, of, of Jesus. The devil comes to him in the wilderness and tries him as we know. Um, then it ends in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country and he taught in all their synagogues being glorified by all. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, stood up to read. He reads from the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the sovereign Lord's upon me. People are initially amazed at Jesus because we've never heard this before. This is incredible. So then Jesus says to them, ah, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did in Capernaum, do also here in your own town as well. And Jesus essentially says, no, I'm not going to do that. They respond by saying, well, we'll throw you off a cliff then as you do. And the, the Christian life, we know this, the Christian life, the human life, is a battle. It's a struggle. And it strikes me in these first few chapters, we see the struggle playing out in real time. We talk about the Christian enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here we have certainly the, the world and the devil, potentially the flesh, if you include Jesus's appetites for hunger uh, as driving him into his temptation. But you've got Jesus's flesh described, if, if not his flesh in terms of it, sinful temptation tendencies Jesus flesh described in his genealogy the son of the son of the son of the son of who he is in his body in his genetic history you've then got him being tested and tried by Satan and then you've got the temptation of the world his hometown his community trying to get him to do as they want him to do and all the while Jesus remains true to his initial identity spoken over him at the baptism the baptism, the father says, you're my beloved son, I'm pleased with you. Then we get, he's the son of the son of the son of the son of, then the temptation of the devil, then the world's temptation. And it strikes me that, again, we know this, the power and significance of a father's voice speaking identity over, even the human Jesus, speaking identity over who he is, he then claims that identity, that he is the son of the father. And although we get his genealogical history, that isn't what defines him. Because when he comes to his hometown, he's not going to do as they tell him to, even though in a community like that, they could have easily said, come on, you're the son of the son of the son of the son of, you should do as we say, you're one of us. Because Jesus says, no, I'm the son of my father. My father has spoken this over me. So all of that to kind of introduce that in the fight against the world, the flesh and the devil, what Jesus is needed is exactly what we need, which is to know that we are beloved sons of our Father. And that's exactly what our sons need to know as well. That if they're going to stand any chance of survival or winning in a fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, they need to know that they're beloved of their Heavenly Father and they're beloved of their earthly fathers as well. In Ephesians chapter 3, of course, it says, I, Paul says, I bow the knee um, before the Father from whom every fatherhood on earth is named. We as dads have the remarkable privilege and responsibility of carrying the name of God in, our, in us. 
we are called to image him to our sons, which is terrifying to say the least. There's an ache in every one of our hearts and an ache in every one of our sons' hearts to be approved of by a father. And ultimately, that will only be satisfied in knowing that they are approved of by the father. But you and I have the opportunity to be windows into the father's approval and the father's nature, the father's guidance for our sons. But we, first of all, need to know that we are loved. John Tyson has this phrase, he says, pain that isn't transformed ends up being transmitted. Pain that isn't transformed ends up being transmitted. And one of the things that we've done in our, uh, I mentioned uh, we set up a dad's group. Uh, There's about 16, 17 of us meet together fortnightly. And for the past year, every week, someone begins by telling their story of how they have been fathered and then how they intend to father the good bits and the bad bits. And it's been humbling, at times heartbreaking and at times inspiring as we've considered the impact of of our experiences of being fathered critiquing that, analyzing that, the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, and then how we might pass that on so that we can ensure that the pain that we're carrying is transformed rather than transmitted. I want to talk a bit, though, about the value of fathers because I don't think we're in a, an, a, a society or in a day and age where fathering is, or mothering, you might say, is held up as being particularly valuable. Or certainly, I don't think we're we're led to believe that fathers are particularly significant. Let me explain myself. There's a book um, that came out 18 months ago by uh, someone called Warren Farrell, 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 called The Boy Crisis. I don't know if anybody's come across this or seen this. So it's a heartbreaking book. He catalogues over 20, 25 years of research um, his observation of the state of fathering and boys in largely the America but the Western world generally. Um, Warren Farrell himself started out as he describes himself as a male feminist. He appeared on Oprah in the 80s, I believe, and was a champion of women's rights. He then saw that, by and large, the tide was going in the right direction in terms of acknowledging the challenge that women were facing and wanting to correct that challenge. And he was starting to notice that it was almost many of the men that he was coming across were suffering and hurting, but no one was wanting to listen to their story. And so found that he was trying to talk about this with the women that he was around, and he found that there wasn't much interest in what he had to say because of, well, their feminists, by and large, have been hurt and felt oppressed by men, and so weren't ready to hear his, his message. So he then, for the past 20, 25 years, has been doing some research and wrote this book. He said this about the state of fathering. He said, dads, like mums, air and water are essential to our lives but we've tried to live without dads. We haven't tried to live without mums, air, or water. We are trying to live without dads in a lot of respects. Uh, I guess, in one sense, owing perhaps to uh, an infant's greater dependency on, on his or her mother for early years and for maternal emphasis, on the maternal emphasis on nurture. Anecdotally, I'm aware that by and large, the family court system overwhelmingly favours mum-style parenting to dad-style parenting. Um, And nevertheless, we're living through a time in the UK where almost half of all children born will be raised in homes without a dad around. Um, And whilst we applaud and champion 
the cause of single mothers, sisters in churches, and I think as, as men in churches, we have responsibility to do what we can to, to help raise and disciple sons in that situation. Um, but nevertheless, the situation is fairly unique in that um, there's no war to blame for the, loss of fa- the lack of fathers around in our society. In 2007, UNICEF said that father absence is the greatest social issue of our time. And our children, particularly our boys, are suffering, from, are suffering more than we realize from the effects of not just dad deprivation, but also dad or male demonization. Many of the messages in our media or the examples of celebrities, of men, uh, a man is regularly told that he's either just entitled and privileged, or he's a predator, or he's overpaid, or he's a, just a clown and a buffoon, or all four of those things. Um, I recently saw an advert by the Scottish police on sexual harassment, and, and the main message was, boys, you need to look in the mirror, and what do you see? A potential sexual predator. Stop it. That was the main message of the, the advert. You are, boys, a potential predator to women. Stop it. And I'm just not sure that messaging helps our sons. When a boy is raised in a home or a society where he regularly hears negative comments uh, about men and masculinity or about his dad or about men, he, or when he looks in the mirror and he grows up wondering, is this what I'm destined to have happen to me too, just to be vilified? Now, whilst it's true, of course, and well, I'll come on to say some of this in a bit, but in the battle of the sexes, when one sex loses, both sex lose it. You know, this isn't a question of, you know, Women, men have got it harder than women or women have got it harder than men. Our challenges are distinct and different. I just don't think we're under an illusion about the challenges that women face in our society, whereas by and large we're often quite deaf or blind to the challenges that our boys face. See, why? because it's true that the majority of our men, the majority rather of CEOs or wealth is held by men in a society, it's true that it's actually the case that men occupy the margins. So men may be... The, the richest and the wealthiest and hold a lot of the positions of power in a society. But it's also true at the opposite end that of the 98,000 prisoners in the UK, 96% of them are men. And of those, those 98,000 prisoners, 76% of them grew up in a home with some level of dad deprivation. Our sons are struggling. In almost all 63 of the most developed nations in the world, Boys are falling behind girls. Boys are more likely than girls to become addicted to drugs, to alcohol, to video games and porn. Um, Warren Ferrell points out with some research that a male's brain looking at naked images of a female lights up in much the same way that a brain lights up on class A drugs. And so in a sexually saturated society like ours, it's harder than ever before for our sons to walk in sexual purity. We need, as dads, to, to ask the question, what's our plan to help navigate our sons through this minefield and this terrain? In the UK, not only do boys score less in reading and writing, but it's estimated that boys' IQs have dropped an average of 15 points since the 1980s. And one factor of that, they reckon, is the rates of fatherlessness. 
I'm aware of a, a class of seven-year-olds in my town, um, which is a fairly nice kind of middle England town in the south coast of England. And in this class, of the ten boys in the class, only three of those boys have dads at home. And of those three, two of them are r- children of people in the church. Now, that wouldn't necessarily be untypical anymore. I understand from, from local family workers that the majority of the cases they're involved with is from dad-deprived families. A startling statistic that Farrell lays out is that for every 1% increase in fatherlessness, you can expect a 3% increase in youth violence because hurting boys hurt others. All that to say that dads, men, you really matter. Your involvement in your sons, your daughters' lives is extremely significant. Now, it, it might be easy to say that, but the question is, what do dads do? <laughs> what question my wife asks me a lot. What do dads actually do? What's a unique or particular contribution of a dad? And I've got some of this in a handout that you can have as you leave. But um, just a few things that Farrell draws out in this book I think is interesting for us. We all know that mums and dads, generally speaking, parent differently and see the world differently. There's this image on here of, um, of a dad throwing a child up in the air to catch them. And they're saying, from this, you might have seen the, the image, it's, it's quite an often used one in parenting classes. From the, and there's a picture saying, from the child's perspective, he's like way up in the sky. I, I know what, yeah, he's way up in the sky. Oh, wait, is it from the mum? Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, that's it. As the dad sees it, you throw your son up and it's like regular height. As the child sees it, He's a little bit higher than he actually is because he's excited. But as the mum sees it, she's terrified because he's way up in the sky. That's the image. Um, It's quite a classic one, as I say. Dads and mums bring different strengths and different benefits to a child's life. From data, studies, and interviews over several decades, they've established 70 different things or 70 specific benefits of of a father's involvement in a child's life. Here's a few of them, just four. First one is boundary enforcement. Typically speaking, mums are really good at setting boundaries, but dads are best at enforcing those boundaries. I don't know if we, I see this playing out so often in our home. I'm like, no, he's broken the rule. He will incur the consequence. Oh, no, he's tired. Or, oh, no, he's had too much sugar. And often she's right. Don't get me wrong. Like, it, there's, a, there's a tension, but I'm aware the instinct in me is towards enforce the boundary. Well, as it happens, enforced boundaries apparently leads to better social skills in later life. That's the first thing, that one of the, of the 70 that dads offer, enforcing boundaries. Second thing is ex- exploration and risk-taking. Dads tend to be more likely to encourage exploration and risk-taking than mums, which leads to better social and emotional skills. Another dad-style parenting, teasing you notice this? Um, teasing is definitely a more male or dad style approach to parenting than a mum style. And far from it being cruel, apparently gentle teasing from a dad is, a, is proven to be a useful tool for preparing children for life. It's like a doctor inoculating someone against the virus. It helps the child's immune system grow strong enough until they're able to fight off the virus of the real world. The real world's a nasty, brutal place. You're going to get torn to shreds. So I think my job as a dad is to remind my son of that in lots of gentle ways. But what's interesting to me is when my wife teases my sons, 
it cuts them a lot deeper than when I do. And, and so you're like, ow, that hurt, Mum. Why would you say that? But I could say something, and it's kind of understood. Well, that's just what Dad does. Because we understand there's a different relationship often. I know we're talking in generalities, but often the, between a mum and a dad. So that's three. The fourth one is play fighting. Dads play fight their kids, and this has proven to have positive benefits for a child's life. Um, it's been shown that toddlers, both male and female, are are able to better regulate aggression when they, as a result of play fighting regularly with their dads. See, fighting with dad for a child is like being on a roller coaster. They are on the edge of death itself in their mind. They're excited, they're exhilarated. They feel safe because they're fighting dad, but they know he's much stronger than they are. Well, it's been proven that regular play fighting with children leads to greater levels of, again, aggression regulation, but also empathy in later life, which is quite fascinating. And there's a really interesting podcast I heard from someone, an expert on this uh, several months ago, saying that he grew up um, with severe ADHD, but learned to process and channel his concentration and his by play fighting with other men that helps settle him. That's quite interesting. And it's not just something that's useful for dads to do with sons, but daughters as well. Again, women, particularly once they hit puberty, it's very rare that any male or boy would interact with their body in a non-sexualized way. And so for a girl in her, I guess... Uh, early teenage years to play fight and wrestle with dad can be tremendously healing because there's nothing sexual about it and they're able to just enjoy their body and enjoy fighting and all of that feeling so there's a four of 70 um you have to buy warren's book to get the others um of the the dad style parenting and the impact that it can make practically it's also been shown this that students from dad enriched homes score better in maths and science at school Um, Children with dads at home are five times less likely to use drugs. And when a dad has positive contact with children during the first two years, the the child shows fewer signs of unwanted or uncontrolled behavior in later life. Another stat is that studies have shown worldwide that the amount of time a dad spends with a child is one of the strongest predictors of the child's ability to empathize as he gets older. So those are some stats from Warren Farrell's book, The Boy Crisis, and from some other things that I've come across. Why don't you just, for a couple of minutes, turn to people around you and ask, ask one another, what did you think of all of that? Did you agree, disagree, any of it resonate, anything you think, oh, the stereotypes aren't actually that helpful? I'd love to just interact with that stuff for a, a while as you are. And then the next bit, we're going to come on to talk about the primal path and the, the benefit of giving our sons uh, a particular intentional approach to becoming a man. So yeah, do that. Sorry, it's always hard to know. Do you, want, you can have a lot longer chatting if you like, but uh, there's a couple of things I want to share and then we'll get into it. I want to make sure we've got some time at the end to pray together as well. Um, essentially, the last thing, last thing you want to sound like you're doing is, is saying that men have got it harder than girls. You know, because we know, uh, of course we're not saying that. Like, but I also don't think that this is necessarily something that gets mentioned or talked about very much. I was, I was shocked to learn that of the, of the top 15 leading causes of death um, in our society, things like heart disease, cancers, accidents, men are more likely than women to die of 14 of those top 15. That's, that's shocking to me. Um, the, the exception being Alzheimer's. Um, 
also learned in recent years that the life expectancy for a man is on average five years less than it is for that as a, than, a, than a woman. And that isn't because of some biological factor as we used to think it was. Partly because in the 1920s that gap was only one year. So the gap of life expectancy between men and women is, is increasing. Um, here's a shocking stat that um, boys and men under the ages 50 are twice as likely to die as girls and women of the same age, which is the worst that has been since World War II. And I know we, I don't want to necessarily raise a, raise a topic that's very sensitive, but we, we've no doubt heard the statistic that suicide is the greatest killer of men under the age of 40. Uh, you're more likely to... to yeah, that's that's the, tragically the main way that pe- men die under the age of 40. But in 2015 alone, more men took their own life than all men died um, from all conflicts since World War II. In 2015, all, more men died by killing themselves uh, in the UK than all, me- all British soldiers had died in conflicts since World War II. That's, that, again, is quite shocking. And suicide accounts for almost twice as many deaths per year as, as, as car accidents. Those are quite shocking statistics to me. Anyway, right. Let's, let's come on to talk about this idea of the primal path. As I mentioned, every culture and many, many cultures and societies have um, in pathways to help initiate their sons, to help them transition from childhood to adulthood. Um, and as we think about this, we want to think about the question, as you imagine your son, obviously some of you will have adult sons, some of you have got very young sons. There are certain things that I think as fathers we should be starting to think through and consider. Things like, what are my family values that I would want to pass on to my son. Have you ever taken time to write down maybe four or five things that you think, these are values of us and our household. People do that for businesses. People do that for churches. Why would we not do that for our homes and our households? Or what does your son need to know about his identity? Who is he? What does it mean to bear that your last name? What is their identity? Again, we're in a society that, that lies to young people and says that your identity is something that comes from within yourself and then gets expressed in the world. Whereas actually, the, the truth is that identity is something that we receive from outside of us first before we discover something internally. I am, you are, products of my um, genetic heritage. So I, I receive that identity, whether I like it or not, and I need to learn about that. So who are you? Who is your son or your daughter based on your last name? What does that even mean? Tyson talks about this beautiful thing where he, he was, he's, an Amer- he's an Australian living in New York, but he took his son back to Australia for a summer and sh- took him to all of the places he grew, that were significant to him in his life growing up. And he so took him to the place where he learned as, to be a butcher as a young man and had the chance to introduce him to his very first boss who taught him how to work. He then gave his son over to his father and said to his dad, take him out for a few days and just teach him as much as you can about your life. He said, I want you to know what it means to be a Tyson. I want you to know you're not an accident. You're not just alone in the world of this individual who's arrived, but you're part of a people. So who are you? Who's your son? What's some of the wisdom that you've learned over many years that you'd want to pass on um, to help them avoid the same mistakes that you did? But also, one of the things that I think is really significant that we all probably ache for and long for in our hearts, and I know our sons do, is acceptance and inclusion by other men, validation of their masculinity. 
Um, again, if we don't initiate our sons into manhood, if we don't acknowledge them as men, they have to self-initiate themselves as men. And often the self-initiation takes the form of dangerous, risky, violent, toxic forms of notice me, approve of me as a man. Well, actually, as men, we get the opportunity to initiate them and accept them. In our culture, of course, the, o- the only initiation right we might have, say, is when you turn 18, you're allowed to have alcohol. And most sons by that point have had already had alcohol. So you're like, well, big deal. Or now you're 18, you can lose your mind and get drunk and ruin yourself. Like, that's, not, that's not a good image of what an adult is. Anyway, um, so in, initiate, sorry, in, in helping our sons transition from childhood to manhood, um, I think there's, there's two things I want us to think about. One is an actual initiating moment, a, a time where we draw a line and we help them to see you're no longer a child and I'm going to help you become a man. Or not. Again, the language isn't helpful. You are a man by virtue of your biology. But we want to help you learn to be good at being a man is the language of, that John Tyson helpfully uses, I think. We want to help our sons become good at being a man. And so there are two things. The, in, the initiating moment, number one, and then number two, Tyson talks about these five shifts that he took his son on. Um, and I'm at the very beginning of this journey myself with my son, but he took his son on these five shifts, which we'll talk about. Um, we, uh, as a group of dads in our church, we did a little bit of research ourselves on the different initiating rites of tribal cultures and read them out and discussed them together, looked for some of the commonalities. A lot of them involve some kind of risk and dangerous element. Uh, the word initiation, I've learned, has a bad rap, um, and so I don't tend to use that. And when I first came home and said to my wife, I want to initiate my son, she thought, oh, I'm not sure I want to give you your son to be initiated. What does that mean? And so I've learned the word initiation might not be a helpful word, so I just say, I want to introduce a beginning for him. <laughs> like, there we go, a beginning, an entryway into a pathway. Um, but many of the cultures that had a clear initiation right, and it, some of them in, involved something, some pretty brutal... Um, they, they have a practice in one culture that they called in, inverted circumcision, which, just those two words together, I'm not going to tell you what it meant, because it's pretty horrible. But, um, but just those two words together sound like, oh, I don't really like the, the idea of circumcision. Now you put the word inverted in front of it, and now I'm just wanting to cross my legs. Um, but in, in all of the cultures, they had common aspects in place. One... They had an honoring of the child, validation of who they've been as a child, and then two, a calling out of the child into manhood. And then thirdly, they often had an element whereby they taught the son to honor and express sympathy for, I'll explain that word, express, honor and express sympathy for women. When I say express sympathy, I mean recognize that by and large they're not as physically strong as you and much of the life of being a biological female is difficult by virtue of having to carry different burdens. But those three things are quite interesting. How would you, how would you do those three things for your son? How would you help him honor his childhood, celebrate it? Number two, call him out. There was one tribe that did this thing on the day of the initiation. The, the tribe's men, the men of the tribe, including the son's father, gather outside the home and they call out for several hours 
Come out, the son of our people. Son of our people, come out. Over and over again. It's very moving, the idea of the son then leaving his mother to go and be part of the men and be accepted by them. Now, again, I know a lot of that sounds, for some, for some of our women particularly, concerning. When I said to my wife, I want you to hand over your son to me. She's like, no, I'm not doing that. So we didn't do that. But we talked about, we talked about it together. John Tyson encouraged his wife, and he, again, he's done a lot more study on this than I have. Um, he encouraged his wife to have what he called a separation dinner. He recognized that there is a, a part of every culture where the, where the mother says to their son, you know, I'm now handing you over to your father for the next period of your life. He's going to teach you how to be good at being a man. Obviously, she's still involved in his life, but there's a clear moment of separation. I was your mother, and I, I nurtured you, I loved you, I cared for you. But from this point on, if you injure yourself on the football field, age 14, I'm not going to run on and hug you and cuddle you and kiss you. I'm going to, I'm going to want to do that, but I'm going to hang back a bit. And Again, I've heard this said before that it takes immense courage for women to let go of and hand over their sons into the, to the world. And that's a, a particular form of feminine courage, like exemplified, I suppose, in Mary letting Jesus go, handing over Jesus to the, to the cross. Now, Richard Rule is a Catholic mystic heretic. Um, he, he's kind of gone full-blown heretic in recent years. But he, um, he's written a very influential book called Adam's Return on this, where he again looked at different initiating rites for cultures and men. He said this, many cultures and religions saw the male left to himself as being a dangerous and even destructive element in society. In some ways, women were historically initiated by their... So he, he talks about uh, yeah, the need to help their sons lose a lot of that kind of dangerous element to them. And he makes the case that the reason this has not been the case in most societies, that girls have had initiating rights in the way that sons have, he says this, women his, were historically initiated by what he calls their one-down position in patriarchal societies, by the humiliations of blood, that is menstruation, labor, and menopause, and by the ego-decentralizing role of child-raising, and by their greater investment in relationships. So he says that, Women, by and large, have not needed initiating rights into adulthood because by nature of what happens to their bodies, they learn that they are not the center of the world and that they need help from others. Men, he said, on the, con by, on the other hand, men have always seemed to need a womp on the side of the head or a fall from the proverbial tower. Their own blood humiliation, think circumcision, in order to become a positive, contributing or wise member of the larger community. It's just quite an interesting idea that women biologically have it wrote in, written into their bodies, uh, and even by virtue of the fact that men by and large are going to be stronger than them, they have mechanisms that help them have their, he, he, well, he talks about their ego being decentralized. When you have a child, you're, you're pouring yourself into another. Men don't have that. A boy hits puberty and he just gets stronger and bigger and realizes he can have power. And so he needs to be given a womp on the side of the head, as Rule puts it. Or you think circumcision for boys. Anyway. So, I don't know what you think about this so far. It'll be interesting to get your response and feedback at the end. Let's think for a moment about initiating, beginning, helping our sons enter a pathway into manhood. What would that look like for you? There's a really good book called The... Um, 
The Power of Moments, I think it's called, um, which I'd really encourage you to get. Just generally, it's fascinating to think about how you can create moments in your life and uh, that elevate reality. You create moments in people's lives that they remember forever. A moment slows down time. Uh, a moment changes who you are. Think of a baptism. A baptism is a, is a moment in time that you remember for a long time and leaves an impression on you. It does so because of its spiritual formative power, but it also does so because it's a moment in time different from other moments in time. You often you stand on a stage in front of other people. You do something you're scared of. Um, you, you express some level of what God's done with you. You make yourself vulnerable. People are there with you. They cheer. They clap. There's food, which I've learned recently. If I want to make a memory, that my, if I want to do something that my wife remembers, I need to have food involved. Because it turns out she only remembers things that have food involved, which is just as well we had dinner at our wedding. Otherwise, I'm not sure she would have remembered it. Um, <laughs> So you think, take baptism. Baptism is a moment that you remember that makes an impression on you because of these elements you put into it. You can create moments like that for your sons. Um, So Tyson describes what he did with his son. And for the past, uh, probably the past 18 months, I would have been preparing in my mind and thinking in my mind about what I would do with my son. And as it happens, last week, maybe 10 days ago, I got to do this with my son. So... My eldest boy turned 13, and then the day after his 13th birthday, I decided I was going to do the initiation or beginning into the pathway, the, what we've called the primal path. And um, for this to happen, I sent out invites to some men, and we put on some event. And it began like this. My wife took him out for lunch, food. See, she's going to remember this, even if he doesn't. Took him out for lunch and gave him some gifts. She gave him one gift that was symbolic of his childhood, and she gave him one gift that she wanted to communicate something about his adulthood. So she gave him a, a significant teddy for childhood, um, which I'm sure he'll keep for the rest of his life. And she gave him a Bible, his first Bible. She then, uh, she then dropped him a, a site that I'd arranged where I was with my other two sons, and we, uh, she and them then waved us off, and me and my eldest son walked about um, six seven kilometers across the hills and on that walk I gave my son several gifts along the way I gave him a, a book I'd produced for him with some wisdom and values as well as lots of memories about his childhood I said I want to honor you as a child and I want to call out you as a man and that was a sweet moment in my relationship with my son. We were sat by the river in Sussex where I live. And he opens his book and he just starts crying. And he says, I'm so lucky to have a mum and dad like you. Which isn't to say he's lucky to have a mum and dad like me. It's say we, we made a moment for him that he's going to remember forever. He felt honored. He felt loved. We then walked further. I gave him some other books. And I said, for the next few years, we're going to read these books together. I gave him some kind of uh, the essential elements of Christian doctrine. I gave him some kind of encyclopedia-type book for devotional life. And, and I gave him some other, what was the other one? I can't remember, some other kind of Christian book that we're going to go through together. And then the last two kilometers, I left him. And I said, you're now going to walk this last bit along the cliff by yourself. And when he arrived at the end point, I'd arranged for other men to be there. And we, about five or six men that, are gonna, that have been and are going to be influential in his life stood around him and they each had prepared a little script. They, wanted, they gave him Bible verses, they blessed him um, and they honored him. 
And then after that, I invited other men. I didn't want to overwhelm him. Invited some other men and women and children, and we had a barbecue, and it was a lot of fun on the beach. And there's some other things which I'll mention. But we did this initiating moment for my son that helps him see you're no longer a child. We've, we've honored that. We're now calling you out. And these men are all saying that they're here to help you at this next stage of the journey. So what would you do as an, an initiating right, a beginning, an entryway? How would you create a moment that, that helps them to see both your honor and love of them and also what's next for their life? We've run out of time, but I'll just skip, skim over these next things then. Then Tyson, working of Richard Rule, talks about five shifts that he then wants to take his son through for the next few years along this pathway. And these are based on some key lessons Key lessons across cultures. The first is this. We want to teach our sons that life is hard. Secondly, we want to teach our sons you are not that important. Um, Thirdly, he says we want to teach our sons your life is not about you. Fourthly, you are not in control. And fifthly, you are going to die. (laughs) It will sound pretty gloomy. And so John Tyson turned these into what he calls shifts, shifts from childhood to adulthood. He says, firstly, I want to take my son on a shift from ease to difficulty. Being a child is a life of ease. Things are done for you. Men embrace difficulty and do hard things. And to help my son with that, I made him carry a big rock that entire walk, all across the walk, uh, across the journey we did. He had to carry this big rock. And then when we got there and I laid out these five principles and we got every man who came to sign the rock for him with a Sharpie. So he's got this symbol, life is supposed to be hard. Secondly, um, John Tyson talks about a shift from self to others. Being a child is essentially selfish. Children expect things to be done for them, but men embrace a life of service and responsibility for others. And so I, had a, I bought him a tea towel, and I got it engraved with um, a, the Bible verse, the Son of Man came to serve. Uh, serve and, yeah, what is it? Not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve. I know it so well. Um, I gave him that with his name on it. So it's a tea towel. It's a little token. Thirdly, um, a shift from the whole to a part. Children think that they're the center of the world and believe that life revolves around them. Men understand that they're part of a story, that they're not the whole story. And so again, I, I gave him a framed copy of the Bible verse. Um, I, but I, am, I was the least of all the apostles, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. To help him understand, like, you have a part to play by the grace of God, but you're not the great I am. That was the idea with that one. Fourthly, we want to take our sons on a shift from the temporal to the eternal. Children think about and live only for the moment, but men understand that there is more to life than just now. We are all of us going to die, and the reality of that must inform our today. And so what I did with my son at this point is I took some ash from the barbecue. It wasn't hot at this point. I took some ash from the barbecue, and I I put it on his head. And he's like, you are going to die. And I said, "May, may your death be on your mind and be aware that life doesn't last forever. And then I got him to take his shirt off. Um, we were by the beach, and it will come clear in a minute. And I, I took some dirt. I brought some dirt with me from our garden, and I rubbed it on his chest. And I said, um, may our home always be close to your heart, and then may our death be, may, may you be aware that you're not going to live forever. So, it's, again, I was trying to create an, in, I'm quite an intense person, a dramatic... <laughs> Yeah, my son's traumatized. Um, he wanted to come to New Day but couldn't. Um, 
So we had, I wanted to create a symbolic moment. I think we're, we're starved of symbols in Protestant West, in my opinion. So I wanted to create a symbol for him that meant something to him. So we did this. And then the, fifth, the last shift is a shift from control to surrender. Being good at being a man means letting go of control. It refuses to control and manipulate other people. And it embraces a life surrendered to God's will, trusting him moment by moment. And so for this, we then took him into the sea, and it was a stormy day. And I said, I'm going to plunge you and hold you under the water for three seconds. Because in the scriptures, on the third day is when God did some transforming things. Um, on the third day, Christ was raised. And it would also wash off the ash and the mud, you understand? <laughs> and so my, my, and it, what was lovely is that uh, my father-in-law, his granddad, was able to come as well. And so me and his grandpa plunged him into the water and held him down for three seconds while the waves got us, pulled him up, and then cheered, and we prayed for him. And it was, just a, it, was a, it was a small moment. I'm at the beginning of this path. I know I've spoken to some of you. At least one of you has five sons, and I'm in awe. Like, how do you do that? That's from, oh, I know how you do that, and I hated that. But good luck with that. It's amazing. But what can we do? What can we do to encourage each other but create these moments for our sons that they remember forever? And now my son knows that for the next few years, three mornings a week, we're going to have half-hour devotionals where we go through some of these books. We're going to do Bible studies around these five shifts, that sort of thing. Now, the purpose in sharing that isn't to say that I'm doing, what, I'm doing it great. I could tell you other stories. I turned up at one of the dad groups having just screamed at my, one of my sons in anger. And I turned up at the dad's group and just cried because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a terrible dad at times as well. I'm like you, you know, with fits of goodness and also oh, rage and anger and bitterness and struggle. So I put that out there because I don't want to present a false image. Um, but that's kind of, that's it. I really wanted to encourage you. And I really wanted to say, consider something like this for helping your sons transition from childhood to manhood. And I'm aware we're out of time and I'm grateful for your patience and your attention. Um, we're going to end there, but I appreciate because some of you are going to have to go. If you do and are able to stick around and pray for each other, that would be lovely. There is a handout of some of the stuff that I shared about um, dads in our society. But other than that, let me just pray and I will call it time there. Father, thank you for the immense privilege of being fathers and mothers in this room. Thank you for the immense privilege of being parents and being able to mirror and provide windows into your character to our sons and our daughters. Bless these men and women who've come. Would they know your face shining upon them? Would you be gracious to them? And I pray, Lord, that from this moment we would, each of us, think of different ways that we can create communities to encourage other men and to support sons and daughters in our churches. And would we help stem the tide of broken boys growing up to break other boys and girls. Lord, help us to be a force for redeeming and restoring our communities one son at a time. In Jesus' name, amen.